0: welcome to another episode of fifth generation leadership so talking again with brad miller today and uh brad's got some cool exciting new stuff uh that he's working on with uh, a new online course that's being developed so i uh, wanted to use that as an opportunity just to catch up uh, talk about that course and then talk about some other stuff because you know uh brad and i follow each other on Twitter and, you know, read each other's sub stacks. And so, um, you know, it's, it's always fun to discuss the, the kinds of philosophical stuff, stuff that's going on in the military, um, with, uh, you know, somebody that's very like-minded, but also, you know, have, have some differences of, of opinion on things with, um, how, just how complex everything is going on and just different takes. So, um, always, always fun to have a good discussion. So, that said, welcome Brad. Um, so, if uh, if you'd like to take a few minutes and just you know catch us up on on what you've been up to, since yeah,
1: yeah, about cool. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, you know, you're right. So we spoke a couple of months ago, and then you and I were always kind of operating the same spaces. We're in a couple of chat groups together, and of course, we do read what each other writes. And um, you know, I see what you put out on Twitter, and you see what I put out. So we're, we're always kind of aware at least in a general sense of what the other is doing. But uh, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to just kind of catch up and see where we're at and just talk about where we each kind of see things as uh, as they are right now. So just as a, maybe just kind of a quick catch up, right? So what's what's new with me? So um, I, I guess I've been out of the army now for almost a year. I guess it's... Um, more like 11 months, but it's, it's hard to, uh, hard to believe that, that that amount of time has already passed. You know, you remarked right when we started before we went live that, uh, each time you see me, you know, my, <laughs> my hair is a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, trying to learn how to deal with that. Also, you know, when you grow a beard, you know, nobody tells you that you got to kind of like learn how to groom your beard. And, uh, and it's not, it's not super easy. So you screw it up. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe two months ago, I like really screwed up. My beard is, um, as I was trying to groom it, you know, you, those are things you just got to figure out. Nobody tells you, nobody tells you that stuff, you know? So here I am just out here on my own, trying to live life, you know, out of the army and nobody tells you about these challenges that you may face. You know, I, I thought I was going to have to actually uh, shave the beard off a couple of weeks ago because I messed it up so bad, but I just decided to stick through it. So, um, but, uh, aside from that, you know, things that maybe are a little bit more, more, uh, substantive than, you know, facial hair. Um, I have enjoyed my time being out of the army. Now, that does not necessarily mean that it has not come without challenges, but um, but I've enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, I like to say that I am happily resigned. So, um, for your viewership and those who may not have caught our first interview or may not be aware of my story, I'll just I'll just kind of give the very 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 quick thumbnail sketch. So, um, yeah, I graduated from West Point in 2003. I entered the army then. Uh, I was an engineer officer in the Army, and uh, long story short, I, uh, I was a lieutenant colonel. I was in command of a battalion in the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell, Kentucky in the summer of 2021, and when I took command, it was a couple of months ahead of the implementation of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Uh, let's see. I took command in June. The mandate was implemented in August, and uh, I was relieved of command for failure to comply with that lawful order in uh in October of 2021. And a couple of months later, when I realized that DOD was not going to walk this back, they were gonna see this through, I was very well aware of the fact that it was completely unlawful. Um at the time that I decided to just go ahead and, and uh and submit my resignation. So, you know, when all this happened uh and so when I resigned, when I actually left the army, I left with uh just over 19 years of active service. So um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go through, but uh, I was actually, I was not aware of the very specific legal characteristics of the uh, of the mandate at the time that I refused to go along with it. Um, I always thought it was predicated upon lies, and I thought that it was going to be strategically destructive, and I felt like there was some something extremely sinister to it, so I was never going to go along with it. But I was not aware of the whole the bait and switch with like, you know, what I call a ghost product, the, the, the community product until, um, just after I had been relieved to command. But when I realized all this and I realized just exactly how, how deep, you know, the whole thing goes, uh, I, that's when I decided to resign. And so I, I left the army last year in September of, uh, 2022, So you know, here we are. Um, You know, I write a lot. I do a lot of uh, interviews and podcasts, and try and share my ideas as to what I think is going on, just from my perspective. Um, You know, not that Brad Miller is going to change the world or anything, but I just like to communicate with other like-minded folks. I've met some really great people, and then, um, and then recently, I connected with a gentleman whose name is uh, James Lyons Wyler, who. Has a kind of a science research organization called the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, but um, as part of that, he has also like an online learning community just for people, you know, adults who just uh, are interested in 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 learning. And so that's when this idea came about to uh, potentially launch a new course. You know, we were in conversations with each other. He's uh, he's from a science background, so he is a is a, is an academic. Um, and so obviously he's very passionate about that. I mean, so am I, not that I come from the academic world per se, but I mean, I'm also passionate about education. So we just started talking about how we might take his online learning community and how I might be able to help maybe continue to branch that out. It's, um, branch that out from where it is right now. It's, it's, it's heavily science oriented, not not entirely, but heavily science oriented, And so we were just kind of pitching ideas to each other as to how I might help maybe branch out um, into some other types of courses. And that's where we came up with the uh, the idea for this course that I personally am going to be teaching when it launches in early September.
0: Yeah. And and so tell us a little bit about that that course. So. First off, just this, this idea of kind of circumventing traditional academia has been, you know, a hot topic in my circles with uh, my friends and people that I write and and talk with. uh, Cause it's just desperately needed. Um, You know, academia is entirely broken, you know, especially with respect to science, you know, with the replication crisis. Uh, I mean, that's all you need to know, right? I, I could talk, we could, talk for hours about all the problems. Um, and I have, uh, you know, two, two of the folks, in my little, you know, tonic discussions group are, are PhDs, you know, one in physics, one in economics. And so they can tell you about all the, uh, all the problems, uh, in, in great detail, but what it comes down to is replication crisis. They can't, replicate more than 50% of landmark studies, which that being the last step of science means that you know it's it's more than a coin flip that what you're reading is bogus, that it's driven by the biases of the researchers um, or just incompetence in, in study design. Uh, that's the only reason why something couldn't be replicated is because it's bogus. So I think it all kind of comes down to that and so we do need these alternative, uh, means of learning, um, you know, you know, developing knowledge in a real way. And it used to be you could find that in a university or, uh, you know, another institute of higher learning. And now that, that that's just a really low percentage uh, proposition uh, and also exorbitantly and prohibitively expensive mm-hmm. because of federal student loans and, and the government's involvement. And guaranteeing loans, which just caused the price to explode. So, all that said, like very excited that you're doing this and and uh, a part of what I consider to be the solution. Uh, so, yeah, just tell us about the course that you're developing and that you're going to be teaching, and then I'll be able to put a, uh, a link to it in the description.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'll I'll uh, I'll describe it in just a second, but let me just caveat off of what you said because I I completely agree, and uh, you know I'm someone who has always felt like education was important. And I even thought heavily about, you know, continuing my own formal education kind of right now, you know, now that I'm out of the army, Uh, I thought about going to school right now and continuing my education. But like you said, um, there's some challenges with that when you go to a a brick and mortar university. Uh, Not that it's an entirely bad proposition, but there are certainly some, there's some heavy constraints that come with that. You know, you may have to move to go to that university, especially if you're going to attend classes in person. Um, there are a lot of limitations when it comes to the interaction that you might have with your other students or with your professors. And of course, just the, I don't even know what to call it, but just the, the, the malaise that has entered the academic community these days. Um, and universities are probably where it is felt at its most extreme manifestation, I mean, it's in the schools as well. It's in, you know, it's in the elementary schools and the high schools, but in the universities, I mean, it's it's you know probably full force. So let's talk about this course. So its title is very simply "Literature as Resistance." Um, let's talk about where the course came from. So in talking to uh, to James Lyons Weiler, who uh, goes by Jack, so in talking to Jack, uh, we were talking about different ideas for courses that might be interesting. But also, it's not just, hey, what's interesting and that's the end of it. It's well, what's also very useful. You know, what will bring people in because they're interested in it, but hopefully they're interested in it because they would find it helpful. And um, so I came up with this idea, which involved taking certain texts, you know, what we call dystopian literature, think 1984, for example, or Brave New World. So taking some of these dystopian texts and then reading and analyzing them to use as, as, a, um, as a type of interpretive lens for viewing what's going on in our world. And hopefully, right, taking some of the insights that come from some of those texts and then being able to apply them to what we see in our world. And, uh, and if it grants us some, some insights into how we might improve our own situation, then, hey, that'd be fantastic um but there's some other reasons that I wanted to do that too so i also think that generally as americans we just we just don't read enough and i'm a big reader i'm an avid reader and always have been and i would still tell you that we just we don't read enough and um when we do read a lot of times what we read is uh is either you know it's entirely pleasure reading not that there's anything wrong with that that's better than not reading at all but um the average american does not do a lot of like substantive educational reading and you can find all of these statistics that say that even a college educated american a lot of times doesn't read another book beyond their college graduation or even if they have it still might be several years since they've read a book so one of the things that i wanted to do with this course was hey let's just encourage some reading not because there's some sort of formal assignment or there's going to be a test, but let's just let's give people a, a reason to, in this course, come together, kind of, you know, hold each other accountable and encourage each other to do some reading. Now, what happens if you take this course and you don't do the reading? Well, I mean, you'll still be able to engage in the class and and uh, receive the presentations that I'm going to give and, and have some interaction with me and the other students, you know, no problem. But my hope would be that individuals may feel some sort of impetus to, you know, engage with the uh, with the literature. And then the other thing is, most of these books, and I'll, I'll go through the the works that we're going to touch on in the course in just a second, but most of these books are books that um, Westerners and Americans specifically have heard of and may have some familiarity with, right? And plenty of Americans have read them, um, but a lot of Americans have not. A lot of Americans, you know, they may understand 1984 because it just kind of exists in the cultural milieu, um, but plenty of Americans haven't read it. Some have, but many who have read it probably only have a, a superficial understanding of the text, not because of their inability to read and comprehend what they're reading, but just because, I'll use myself as an example. So I'm, I'm 43 years old. I first read 1984 right after I graduated from West Point. I'd never read it before in school or anything. And I read it as a as a brand new lieutenant. I read Animal Farm and uh, and uh, 1984 back to back. Both of them written by George Orwell. Um, I don't remember exactly. I don't remember exactly what, what drove me to pick those up and read them, but I did. And I will tell you that again. know, yeah, recently graduated from college, being a you know fairly smart guy. Um, my understanding of 1984 compared to now was yeah, superficial at best. So between then, just add 20 years of life experience, but then also add in 20 years of viewing what's gone on in the world and the way in which I have refined my own worldview. And what I what I see in a text like 1984 now compared to 20 years ago, it's almost like I didn't even read it 20 years ago, other than just to kind of you know, capture some of the narrative, but it's almost like a, you know, my my understanding was just surface deep, like I said. So what I want to do is um just help others if if people have never read it before, or if they only have kind of a casual understanding of it, well, let's let's dig into it a little bit. We don't have to go crazy. You know, nobody's trying to get a PhD from this course, right? But let's just go through and engage with the text and interact with one another and see where we think we're at and see what we can glean from the texts. Um but let me go ahead real quick and um And I'll explain the works we're going to go through and then I'll stop right there. And then later I can kind of go through and and tell you kind of how I formulated the uh, the outline of the course, kind of the syllabus and why I constructed it the way that I did. But um, there are six general works that we're going to look at. Four of them are novels. One of them is a short story and one of them is actually a movie. Okay. Um, so the one that most people are familiar with, 1984 so that's that's part of the curriculum the one that is probably the second most well known is brave new world uh fahrenheit 451 and then there's a there's one that i i included that most westerners are probably unfamiliar with and that is a russian novel that is called we as in like you know you and me we we and then there's a short story called the machine stops um from 1909 so you know it's it's 100 plus years old. A lot of people are unfamiliar with it. And then uh, and then a movie. There's a movie called Metropolis that um, is from the year 1927. It's a black and white silent film that um, is, I mean, it's just an incredible film. Um, I mean, very, very dystopian and very eerie in nature. But um, there's a lot that we can take from it. And a lot of people have never even, a lot of people never even heard of some of these. So that's I want to introduce them to them and, uh, and get them interested in this type of stuff because this stuff can be applied to what's going on right now.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think that people really underappreciate the degree to which stories like this uh, impact the way that you see the world. And I'm, pretty troubled by, you know, like, but most of those books, like Fahrenheit 451, uh, animal farm, 1984, uh, you know, they were heavily integrated into, um, you know, curriculums of, of, you know, high schools, I think animal farm, maybe, you know, in like middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's like you said, it's like you read them 20 years ago, but I mean, I, I think, those stories for me they've stuck around in my head and things jump out at me still to this day as clearly orwellian and and how would you characterize something that's orwellian if you'd never been exposed to that work it's like it it would have an entirely different level of power over you and 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 being able to kind of befuddle you and, and impair your ability to respond. Like you said, like the the resistance, like literature as, uh, what's, what's the title of it? Literature as? Literature as resistance. As resistance, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 it does that. It very clearly does that. It gives you an intellectual framework because we think in narrative. And so to have these powerful narratives to kind of show where certain ideologies terminate, And what kind of world we can expect if we bend the knee and comply with certain things. uh, You can't connect with that without a narrative. And, you know, we have the luxury of having these uh, great minds in times past that have constructed these compelling narratives. And to not be exposed to them leaves us way more vulnerable. So I really like the idea of packaging um, a lot of them together and then having it in this environment, we're actually able to discuss it. Um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm probably going to, uh, participate, uh, in, sure. in the class because, yeah. uh, a couple of those, like we were discussing earlier, I haven't, I haven't read, like I, ha- I've yet to read Brave New World. Like mm-hmm. I've seen a lot about it, um, a lot of references to it, but I haven't, uh, read it through and through. And I, you know, I feel like i probably need to because you know uh it seems like from what i know about it what we're experiencing today is kind of an amalgam between all these different works that you're talking about um so on on that note how how do you because i mean I, i i think we we mentioned before talking earlier that it's the situation that we find ourselves in, it's like you're talking about dystopian literature. There are a lot of ways in which either Western civilization and what we're inhabiting now is already a dystopia or it's rapidly becoming one.
1: Right. Um, Yeah. So I I came across an article, I guess it was two days ago. Um, I actually put it out on Twitter. I just happened upon it, but I actually found it, very interesting and um, and very timely as I'm talking about this course or whatever, but the, and I don't even recall who the author was and I don't know their name would have rung a bell anyway, but um, I think it was from a website called Burning Platform, but the title of this article, it jumped right out at me because the title of the article was um, Burning Books in Our Brave New 1984 World. So and it and um and it had a slide with a Venn diagram of you know Brave New World, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, and you've got the overlap in the middle of those three, and it says you were here. And so, so the title, "Burning Books in a Brave New 1984 World," I mean that's basically a um, a synthesis of the themes and or the titles of those three those three books, 1984 you know brave new world and fahrenheit 451 one of the principal themes in fahrenheit 451 being you know the burning of books um but this goes back to kind of what you were just saying where hey a lot of times if if our understanding is only surface deep and 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 sadly that's kind of where a lot of people are at right um you don't necessarily realize just how deep this goes and how we've gotten to where we are um you mentioned Brave New World specifically, right? So I think Brave New World is one that really Americans have to read. I think reading 1984 is great. I think coupling 1984 with Brave New World is uh is better. Now if you add in Fahrenheit 451 kind of like I was just explaining with that article that I came across, then that's 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 much better still. But the reason I say that is because the um the dystopian vision that is posited in 1984 is different than the dystopian vision that is kind of posited in Brave New World. So what what George Orwell, the author of 1984, and what Aldous Huxley, the author of, uh, of Brave New World, what they kind of see in the future, a lot of similarities, but there are some very stark differences. And it's important to kind of look through those. And then kind of as you're reading, and you're looking at it, and you say, you know what, I can see some elements of the 1984 world that are extant in the reality that we're living in. But I can also see some elements that are much more similar to, you know, Brave New World, as it were, that we're also living in. And so that's kind of why I wanted to give some, I mean, it's it's dystopian literature that we're reading, but I still wanted to give some variety and some... Um, a couple of different views from these authors to help us just increase our picture of what we're seeing right now.
0: Yeah. Like, like what I, what my instincts are telling me, um, is that all, you know, people with a totalizing ideology and this mindset where, you know, what I, what I, what I boil it down to is kind of like what what the real fight that we're facing is, is between people with epistemic humility. And so, like, you know, epistemology, study of knowledge, like, how, how do we know what's true? How do we develop that? There are people that are certain and certainty about metaphysical matters, um, things that you can't formulate a research question to to get an answer um about higher order truths Mm -hmm. you can be certain about those things and that's okay you know because you don't necessarily expect people to believe what you subjectively experience and then also it's like an objective truth without you know some sort of different like where you're making material claims um not everybody has to agree about those things. And that's okay. I think the big problem that we face is when people are certain about some aspect of our shared reality. Because that certainty comes with, you know, in their minds, the authority to enforce that against people that don't believe the same things. Because if you're certain, and they disagree and other people disagree, then you're certain that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you're certain that they're wrong, then how would you not have the authority to use whatever means necessary in order to achieve, uh, you know, the greater good from your perspective that that you're certain about? Right. And I look at 1984 and Brave New World, like I said, I haven't read it, but I, you know, read a lot of, Uh, you know, summaries and and articles about it. They're different tactics that that I think they represent broadly two different sets of tactics that people who are certain about the way things should be use in order to uh, exert control over over people that they have the authority to do so, people that they're better than, etc. And one is a lot more over the top absolute control over language, et cetera, the other one's flooding the zone with information. And we are experiencing those exact things right now um, with you know CISA and Department of Homeland Security and the, and the VAT censorship apparatus that uh, that's used to ensure the propagation of regime supporting narratives and suppress anything that undermines those narratives but then in an information environment that's just so overwhelming that that tactic becomes feasible even when it's possible to still get through the censorship and find information it's so difficult because the zone is so flooded with information and so few people are going to be able to do it that you combine those two strategies and you essentially have a very effective lock. Um, And, you know, the most recent example that had massive political repercussions is the the Hunter Biden laptop story, where that changed the outcome of our presidential election, almost certainly, you know, and then polling data afterwards confirmed that. You know, it was it was totally possible to know that that story was true. If you had a high level of discernment, if you are looking at alternative media sources, if you have a prior skepticism of the intelligence community and understand that these are not people that are anything more than political creatures, um, you have all that knowledge and understanding and you know where to look and you knew exactly what was going on while it was happening. But since it required this discernment and since the information space is so complex, the censorship apparatus as it existed, they had this mechanism where they could go in, get 50 plus intelligence community professionals to sign a memo saying this has all the hallmark indications of Russian disinformation. And even that, if you have discernment as a tell, because they didn't say that it was, they had they said it had all the hallmark indicators, which means nothing. Like because if it turns out that that's bullshit, well, they're not exactly liars. Like how do you like you know you you can't you can't contest that. So it's like they're they're hedging in a way that that telegraphs what's going on if you have a high level discernment. Um, but then you have CISA, you have. All like Facebook, Twitter, every tech giant closely linked in with all the uh, Intel agencies and DHS suppressing the story under the uh, predicate that it's Russian disinformation, you know, because they established that predicate and now it's like, okay, this is a threat to our national security. And so we can suppress it. And I mean, it was incredibly effective and what's to stop that from continuing to happen unfortunately you know we got Missouri v Biden so we got a good supreme court um or not supreme court but we got a good uh, court decision that has ruled this practice unconstitutional essentially and so there's still political possibilities for for us to slip this noose that's rapidly tightening. Um, and I, I think that an examination of, of these, these things is probably necessary to get the level of discernment that we're gonna need in order to understand what's going on in order to counteract it. But all that said, um, I I wanna pivot and talk about, about politics, about um, like dialectic, because this is something that we've gone, you know, we haven't gone into detail on, but it's just like something I've seen you saying, hey, you know, this is this is just uh, dialectic, like pretty much all the political leaders that are put in front of us are playing a part um, in a in a narrative, and you know whether they they're aware of that or not, like the degree of that awareness. And I'm kind of not of that, I'm not completely of that camp. I think it works a little bit different. I think that there are people, it's mostly, certainly that that there is some of that. But I think that also there are politicians that are, or I guess it's conceivably possible for a politician to be elected that means, well, that believes in the constitution. And I could, I could say a, a couple examples, but I wanted to see if, if you wanted to talk about that at all. Cause that, that is something that I wanted to pick your brain about.
1: Yeah, uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So, um, there's a couple of things that I want to say, um, the, you know, so you mentioned censorship, you mentioned, you know, control, Control of information. I mean, we live in an environment that um, for anyone who puts any level of analysis into what's going on, we are currently in an environment today that is entirely antithetical to the founding of our own country and the and the principles that it was supposedly founded upon. So of of course, you know, we can debate the degree to which that is happening or how we got here, et cetera. But uh, the truth of the matter is, I believe most people would say somehow, some way we got here. And you said, you know, there's there are still political solutions, and we can still figure this out. I, I I kind of agree. I do think that things are very, very. I do think that we're in extremely dangerous times. I do believe that our political system is very, very, very broken. Um, however, I am optimistic. I do think that there are some solutions that are still viable um I think they're few and far between um and that that might be where where you you and I maybe disagree is about the um maybe kind of the scope of the problem, not necessarily the nature of the problem. So um there's a term that I hear thrown around a lot. I know you know what it means and and but I hear it thrown around a lot and I have kind of an like an interesting take on it. So the term that, one of the the terms du jour that we hear nowadays all the time is uh, is gaslighting. Okay. So that term you probably know where it comes from, and and um many of those watching this probably do, but I guarantee it not everyone does. So the term itself comes from a movie. Um and the movie it's it's from I've I've seen it. I actually watched it because I wanted to know the origin of the term. But anyway, it's from the 40s, old black and white film. It's actually a pretty good movie, like it's it's worth seeing. Um but the the term gaslighting or the phenomenon of gaslighting comes from this movie, and it refers to you know old gas lamps, right? Um, anyway, the term has come to mean a a psychological or the a psychological attack from one person against another, or from you know one party against another um, that forces the targeted person or group. Uh, to almost question their own sanity, right? So here's what I think happens now a lot in a way in which this happens. So for example, you mentioned the Hunter Biden laptop. That's a good example. Um, Some people might look at the election as a whole and there are plenty of other circumstances as well. So here's what happens, I think, to the, the mind of the average American when they are presented with this type of information. They are presented with an option, which is, um, let's use the election. President Biden, you know, defeated Donald Trump in a free and fair election. Okay, that's an option as to what Americans can believe. Okay, another option is, we don't have free and fair elections because a, um, an individual who is completely incompetent and incapable of serving as president has now just been placed in that position. Okay. That's an an option that, you know, people can believe, but the average well-meaning American may find both of those like equally distasteful. Okay. Well, I don't want to like, I can't believe that, that Joe Biden is capable of serving as president. Um, And therefore, I can't believe that a majority of Americans would have voted him in office. Like, I just I can't believe that just does not compute. But I also can't believe that our system is so broken that he would have been placed into the Oval Office by hook or by crook. I can't believe that either. That's as reprehensible. And so now I'm not saying that the average American necessarily goes through and lays that out in their mind but subconsciously they're placed with these options and they 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 find you know they find them equally reprehensible they can't believe either and so even if they don't necessarily mean to and even if it's at a subconscious level they are either forced to kind of question their own sanity maybe not literally to where they think that they're actually going crazy but they think that they there must be something that they either do not or cannot comprehend um because there's just no way that either of these options could be true. Another option. What's that? And then they check out. Yeah. They check out or they question the sanity of the system, like the order of the system, you know, not that previous option to where, well, the system is so corrupt and it's broken down, but I'm talking about like they question the order of the overall system, not the electoral process, but like their overall system, either, Either their comprehension of reality is skewed, or either something in the greater world is skewed. And again, I'm not saying that the average person goes through and lays this out logically. I'm just saying subconsciously, they have all these conflicting ideas. And I think that um it's going to cause confusion. And so therefore that stuff can be a type of, of gaslighting for sure, you know. Um, and I think a lot of that stuff is done deliberately to keep people confused or to get people to check out. Or this is what I think happens in a lot of scenarios. People decide, and again, it may be at a subconscious level, they decide, I'm just going to follow the path of least resistance. Now, what does that look like? It looks like I'm just going to listen to the authority figures. Because if I can't trust them, then who can I trust? I just, I got to do something. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen to the authority figures. And we saw that you and me and, and people like us, I mean, we saw that in the military the last two, two and a half to three years, you know, even people that we would hope would be less likely to just kind of, you know, check out or go along to get along. But we saw how even they largely did the exact same thing.
0: Yeah, it's. it's, So. Just to go on down another tangent. Because really, you just need. You need inoculation against gaslighting, right? And so, I, I think the best way to describe it—the the word and meme, meme culture that's used—is being based. So it's like, <laughs> how do you be based, right? Like the way that I, the way that I try and stay based is through Bayesian inference. And I don't know why, like every, people that are like rationalists and big into reason and stuff, they they know about it and they they espouse the the values of it. I was originally familiarized with it um, from a movement that's gone completely off the rails called science-based medicine. So um, you know, g- growing up as a, you know, attending a liberal church as a, you know, more you know as an as an atheist, um, being very interested in in science and reason and all these things um, you know, Reason can go off the rails pretty easily because, you know, as as Robert Barnes says, and he's absolutely right, motivation is the master of reason, not the other way around. So if anybody, if you don't understand that, and you think reason's this independent thing that can lead uh, your motivations and is ahead of your motivations, then you will be you will be you know like it's like a wag the dog type of thing you'll be led thinking that you are you know very reasonable and um making sound decisions based on quote-unquote reason but really you end up just rationalizing whatever your motivations are so you you moralize your self-interest and do all of this uh this kind of stuff that if you don't have those some external observer who doesn't share those motivations, like the reasoning is going to be very unpersuasive, persuasive to you, because like I said, you know, motivation is the master reason. So how do you, how do you get out of that? I mean, the only way is by changing your motivations. So if you have the self-awareness to really know yourself, to really know what your objectives are, what you're trying to get out of life, and you can really be honest about that, which is not easy to do. But if you can, that's the only way that reason becomes an effective tool after that point, not before that point. If you can get to that point and you can say, make your motivation knowing the truth as it is, regardless of the consequences, for example, then now, your motivation is aligned in such a way that reason can actually be useful but even then you know you can get tricked so anyway so being big into reason found you know because of one of my mentors growing up science-based medicine which is in contrast to evidence-based medicine so at the time and this happens less these days But they had evidence-based medicine and they would take alternative, uh, complementary and alternative medicine. Have you heard of that, Cam? Complementary and alternative medicine? I don't think so. So it's it's the blanket term for uh, non-biomedical model medicine. So things like acupuncture, um, Eastern medicine. Um, But uh, I would even extend it to things like manual therapy uh, cupping, um, yep. in, in physical modalities, um, meditation, yoga, maybe kind of, um, things that are difficult to measure homeopathy for sure. 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 And these things, you know, when you're designing a, a study, you know, you're taking a 5% risk, like using the current model that we had, and I already talked about replication crisis and stuff, but using the model that we have for doing science and doing clinical research, you're taking a 5% risk of a a type one error because you set the P value, you know, the the alpha level is 0.05. So if your P value is below 0.05, statistically significant difference. And hey, you found something, there's a difference. So it's like you did, you gave somebody this homeopathic treatment, and you know, one time out of 20, if you if you run that trial 20 times and there's no difference with the homeopathy, that's just water. Um, one time out of 20, you expect that you're going to find a difference. Um and as soon as you as soon as you do, like with that alpha level at 0.05, then that gets published and everything else gets ignored. So that's that's publication bias. But there's also um, like what, what, they would do if they didn't find a difference, like you can, you can attribute that to all sorts of things like insufficient power. So statistical power is like this amalgam of effect size, like how big of an effect did it have, how many people were you looking at, um, and the population. And so if you don't find a difference, that's always an escape if you want to sell something, you can say, Oh, well, we didn't have sufficient power. You know, the study was underpowered. So we need more research. And that's what they would always say. And so that is the evidence-based medicine paradigm, which is, is fine. But science-based medicine came as an alternative to that from a bunch of like really left hemisphere dominant, like science and reason, atheist, types materialist types you know like i kind of used to be and they were like well check it out you 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 can't do that that's dumb you need to use bayesian inference so you look at homeopathy right and homeopathy is you take something you dilute it until there's zero molecules left of the active ingredient right And so what's the prior probability that water with zero molecules of the thing that you're, you know, the medicine that you're supposedly using to treat a condition is going to have an effect other than placebo effect. And that prior probability is really low, you know, because how would that even work? What's the proposed mechanism? And so you your standards for what would persuade you that homeopathy is effective now becomes more than just a randomized controlled trial that shows statistically significant difference now you need more than that because you need a proposed mechanism too and that's not the way that science works today and what has happened is, is that's allowed it to be completely captured by industry because the the system can be gamed and These science-based medicine folks are actually some of the most rabidly pro-like mRNA vaccine that you'll find. Mm -hmm. You know, ironically enough, because you know to them all the mechanisms make sense. For it's like, oh yeah, the mechanisms make sense, but what what's the master of reason? It's motivation, and so like they're motivated to think of to really elevate Western medicine and this biomedical model. And so they look at the mechanisms and the parts that make sense, but they don't think about all the stuff, like it's confirmation bias. Like they, you know, the fact that we've never vaccinated against a coronavirus successfully before, or the fact that we can't really vaccinate against retroviruses because they mutate too rapidly by the time you develop and deploy a vaccine, it's different. Um, like all the particulars they just don't pay attention to they pay attention to the stuff that makes sense discard the rest
1: so sorry for going into this really long tangent but i just want the uh i just want the title of this to be like something like um getting based but spelled yeah, d- b-a-y-e-s <laughs> <laughs> apostrophe d or something like i don't know who would understand that play on words but- yeah, yeah. <laughs> um let me let me so let me let me pull in that thread just a bit so you you um uh, interestingly enough when I was in the process of kind of being relieved of command my uh my brigade commander used to talk a lot about like type one error et cetera. anyway um Sorry. so so going back to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning about um first of all I find the the word Totalitarian, you know, to be pretty interesting. And you even mentioned somewhere along the way when when you you said something earlier about a, a I can't remember exactly what you said, but you said a a totalizing ideology or something like that. So the way I look at total in totalitarianism or a totalitarian regime is that it's so much more than just, you know, compliance. I mean, maybe that's authoritarian, right? Like Hey, we need you to comply. You will do this. We will use force against you to ensure you comply. But totalitarianism implies almost, you know, ownership and not even ownership of your body, ownership of your soul. And if, and if the regime can't own your soul, then they have to convince you that you don't have a soul that, you know, you're reduced down to just, you know, the, the material. So interestingly enough, not planned, but I actually have right here. I just happen to have, so this little booklet, this is a short story that uh, is the first thing that we read in the course. It's called the machine stops, but it's interesting because even if you know nothing about this little, this little short story, you can tell almost from the title that um, there is some sort of promotion of a very materialistic paradigm in the short story, not necessarily by the author per se, but just, in whatever regime that the narrative of the story is going to be about, there's going to be this promotion of, you know, rank materialism, perhaps even to include some sort of overarching, like mechanistic function, you know, and that is, that is what the story is about where humanity is basically controlled by this super apparatus or this, you know, super instrument called the machine. Um, There's a, so, what are some some descriptors now that are used for um, very modern totalizing systems? So, there's uh, you know there's the term technocracy, or even the term scientific dictatorship, and I also find those very interesting because you know what's a technocracy and how long has the concept of a of a technocracy been around? Well, I mean there are some concepts of this that have been spoken about as early as. Plato. So I mean you're talking 2,000 plus years ago. Um, I mean, there are elements of this that were discussed in in Plato's Republic. So you know, back then the term would have been the, the ancient Greeks would have used the term techne, but that's where our concept of technology comes from today. So you know, you mentioned either materialist a materialist paradigm or you know, an atheistic paradigm or whatever. So regardless of what an individual's worldview might be right now, one thing that I think that we have to recognize is that in a a totalizing regime, in whatever form it takes, it cannot allow you to appeal to anything that would be a superior authority to itself, to the regime itself, which is why uh, throughout history, one of the things that we see these regimes do is they have to get rid of the notion of god because they can't have and they have to do that for a couple of reasons. One, we do not want our subjects appealing to anything that could be considered superior to the regime or superior to the state, you know, the state or whatever whatever the regime is, you know, has to become the new god. But also we don't want our subjects feeling that they themselves are unified in some sort of of nature that almost like transcends the material. Um, we don't want them even thinking in any sort of of transcendent way. We have to reduce all of that down to the here and the now that the regime can entirely uh, entirely control or at least attempt to. Yeah, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what, what
0: jumps out to me about that. Cause like, I, I think of things in terms of, uh, you know, of, of nature and just how complex it is. And like using, using, applying my framing to that, that I was kind of like trying to, trying to explain and then went on a huge tangent about Bayesian inference is nature can't, it's too complex to understand completely and to have any, any degree of certainty. About the complexities of nature, um, that speaks to just a, a hubris that can't be supported um, uh, rationally or, you know, spiritually, like with with faith. Um, and it, it, that's you're exactly right. I, I think they. they what unites these regimes is they can't have something that challenges their authority and if because their their authority is predicated on them being absolute masters of all of existence like nothing is above them but if if nature is too complex for them to have all the answers as to what's optimal to have all the information then that undermines their authority and it can't be allowed um So God is the most straightforward means of, you know, cutting through that. Um, You know, I, I, the whole nature thing is like a little bit more abstract, but it's the same concept and it comes down to the, that that same battle that I was trying to get out about between um, epistemic humility and hubris where, Mm -hmm. you know, the only way these people can think that they have the authority to, to do the things that they want to do and exert the kind of control and subvert natural law. Cause I mean, I think natural law is that, um, people have negative freedoms. And if you violate people's negative freedoms, like nobody wants their negative freedoms to be violated. So it's inherently hypocritical if you go doing it to other people. Um, and so I, I, there's like a logic. It's like, it's built into the fabric of reality. Like there is some natural law and that's what our constitution is based on, which is why I swore an oath to it, right? It's because it's something that that's transcendent, that's real. The document itself isn't transcendent, but what it's referring to is there's something there that's, that's transcendent, whether it be God or nature, like what, whatever you want to call it, There, you know, there are no men, there is no government that is above um above that. And people that are trying to exert the level of control that they feel entitled to exerting, I I think that's absolutely right. They can't afford to have people thinking in that way because it makes you based, right? (laughs) Like you're not going to be able to gaslight somebody into um going along with that and they're like no you know like you aren't above god like the government is consistent of people and they are not above god they are not above nature they can't rewrite the rules of the objective reality that we all inhabit and share in um to fit their desires um that's not how any of this works and if they try then uh, we will all be punished, you know, because they you know you're you're subverting God's will and or uh, acting against nature, and there are consequences for that. There might be cosmic consequences. I think there's material consequences um, for breaking the rules of nature. And they, they really think that they can rewrite them. And the only way that they can continue to tell themselves that they can do that is with, this, with a totalizing system. And you know, I think the best way to capture that is this fixation on trans stuff, like specifically moving towards transhumanism. Because it's like, what's the one thing that we all share that we can all have consolidarity about is our humanity. And what entitles us to natural rights is our humanity, our free will, things like that. And um, as soon as you have transhumanism, well, what's a human? You know, like yeah. we've we've gone beyond that. And yeah, I completely to, agree. Yeah, I and send agree. those limitations. Um, but that's really, really, it's just very advanced gaslighting. It's trying to frame it in a way it's like, no, you, you can't do that a man can't become a woman and a human can't become not a human because they put in, you know, a chip in their brain from Elon Musk, you know?
1: Yep. I wanted to, so I I grabbed a book just right off the bookshelf here because you said something that reminded me of this. This is actually one of my favorite books. It's called the feast of the goat. And, um, I read it a while ago. It's by, um, so it's by, it's by a guy named Mario Vargas Llosa, who's actually a, uh, Peruvian author he's a pretty well-known uh author in in latin america but he's peruvian uh at some point he was uh, the candidate to the peruvian presidency but the book is about rafael trujillo who was um basically a dictator in the dominican republic and um he was he was in power in the dominican republic for about 30 years. I want to say from like 1931 to 1961, I might be off by, by a year or so, but, um, and then eventually was assassinated. So this book, Feast of the Goat, in Spanish, it's called La Fiesta del Chivo. And, um, and that's because El Chivo, which means the goat was, uh, was a nickname that the people would use for Trujillo. So the book's very interesting because um, Trujillo is a super repressive dictator, you know, he's eventually assassinated, but, um, the people, you know, behind his back, of course, would call him, would call him the goat. Um, But the reason that I like that book so much is because it um, and I, I, the the author is, is very upfront in in saying that um, though the book is, you know, based on a true story um, he has certainly had to take some, some artistic license to fill in the gaps, you know? Um, But anyway, but the way that that um, Vargas Llosa kind of portrays Trujillo is this guy who is a prisoner of the own image that he has created within the people. So he has like, is kind of my interpretation of you know Vargas Llosa's picture of Trujillo. But it's almost as if Trujillo is uh, at once suffering from like a like a god complex. And then an inferiority complex at the exact same time, right? Because he's he's trying to make himself a god, you know, vis-a-vis the people, but at the same time, he can never actually replicate the image that he is trying to portray, you know? He can't actually be what he's trying to present himself as. And so that misalignment there is going to create an inferiority complex. And I'll give you just a real quick example. So like, Trujillo, has to wake up every single morning you know super early and do exercise because that's what Trujillo does and so if he if he if he doesn't if he like tries to sleep in or whatever and doesn't wake up super early to do his morning exercise then he is he is no longer kind of propagating the image that he's supposed to supposed to portray. And the people around him will know that because he has like guards outside his door, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a while since I've read the book, but I mean, again, he becomes a slave to this image that he himself has sought to portray, you know? Um, Anyway, it's a fantastic book because there are other issues at play. For example, Trujillo is, um Trujillo suffers from incontinence, you know, which means he can't always hold his bladder. I'm assuming that's historical. I'm assuming that that's not artistic license yeah. from the author i'm assuming that that is is based in historical fact i don't necessarily know that 100 but trujillo this this dictator who has portrayed himself as a god has one of his closest aides or assistants and they have kind of like a plan that if he's ever at some sort of formal function and um he typically you know would wear his military uniforms like military dictator and um if he had if he suffers from a bout of incontinence Then, you know, he's got a signal to this assistant who will then come up and like accidentally, you you know, like uh, spill a glass of water or a pitcher of water onto him. One, to mask the fact that he has just lost control of his bladder, but then two, to then give him the excuse to, uh, you know, remove himself, you know, excuse himself from the banquet or whatever to go, you know, change. Um, Anyway, fascinating, fascinating book for the way that, uh, that that portrayal is is done by the author. It it literally is one of my favorite books, but, um, but I find it enlightening because um, even a dictator does not matter how you've built yourself up. You either one, you know, depending on how we want to look at it, you're you're not going to outsmart God. You can't subvert God or, you know, even, even nature. So, Hey, it's great that you've got your whole country that basically, you know, worships you as some sort of, God or, or want to be God, but you still can't even control your own bladder, you know, which means you still suffer from the same human frailties, you know, that all of us suffer from in, in one form or another. Another thing that I wanted to, that you were making me think of when you said that is um, so going back to the course, because I did want to explain this just very quickly. So why am I teaching the course and, and what qualifications do I have to teach this course? Um, I mean, I don't have a, I mean, I'm not a literary professor, whatever. I'm just a guy who reads books and who likes to talk about them and who likes to analyze the world that we live in. But the one thing that I think that I offer, and I say this, you know, with an abundance of humility is, um, is maybe just that worldview. And I'm not saying I understand everything correctly. That is not my point. None of us do. None of us have a perfect view of what's going on in the world, but I think I'm a very critical thinker, and I think uh, I'm also very cautious in what I kind of choose to accept when I see it offered to us. And in that way, I do think that I can be a help for other people if for no other reason than maybe just to give them perspectives that they have not necessarily thought of. And the good thing about literature, I mean, I'm not a, not a a relativist, but the good thing about literature is literature is meant to be interpretive. You know, it is by its very nature subjective. And so I think that's a good thing, but I think that there are lots of lessons that we can take from these books. And I do think that I would be helpful in, uh, in expounding some of those to other people, not because I'm, you know, Mr. Smart Guy or have all of the, um, you know, the formal qualifications that that other people might have.
0: Yeah, I like, I like what you said, like, I'll zoom in on the relativism thing. Cause I think a lot of people get wrapped around the axle when you talk about values and, you know, I'm, I'm very strongly of the opinion that values entirely subjective. So because human nature being what it is, like there are patterns and trends and a lot of people share uh, values to one degree or another, like certain like kinds of personalities, they, there's more overlap, but that's where it comes from. Like it comes from the individual, right? Like the, you know, whether it's product of your soul or material between your ears, right? Value is subjective, but that doesn't mean that the, na- the world that we all share is subjective at all. Like it, it, reality is objective, but we all value the different features of it in our own ways. And so, art is definitely going to affect all of us differently, and literature is a form of that. Um, but yeah, we're all going to interpret it differently because of our our own values. But that doesn't mean that value is uh, relative or that reality is relative.
1: No, value is subjective and reality is objective. Um, so, uh, yeah. So you you mentioned dialectics earlier. So let's um, you know let's talk about that. This is another one of those. Words that is thrown out a lot and can be interpreted on uh, a variety of levels, and, and including some that are very, very, very deep, much deeper than probably the average person kind of needs to go. But I do think people need to be acquainted with the term and where it, where it came from because it's used a lot. Uh, I use it a lot in conversation with people, and um, and sometimes I think that they don't necessarily know what I mean when I when I use the term. Um, and that's not necessarily because I'm super smart and trying to use terms that confuse people. But I just think it's important that we understand what that means. So when people use the term dialectics, a, a very simple way in which to understand that just kind of on the surface is. Um, it comes from the Greek word dialecticos, which is also where our word dialogue comes from. So the word already um Means some sort of interplay between two groups or ideas or concepts, etc. And that's critical. That's critical to understanding how dialectic can be used in a positive way or in a way that is meant specifically to obscure or obfuscate. So, a way in which dialectics can be used positively is in a courtroom trial where you have Two opposing sides, and the interplay between the sides is done specifically so that the truth might emerge. You know, and that's a good thing. That's the the aim of the whole trial. Another way in which dialectics can be used positively is through what we would call like uh, Socratic reasoning or uh, the Socratic method. You know, which of course is named for Socrates. The use of the dialectic goes at least back to Plato, but probably even, you know, further back than Plato. But of course, when Plato wrote his dialogues, who's the principal character in his dialogues? It is, of course, you know, his mentor, Socrates. And that's where um, this concept of, you know, the Socratic method comes from. But but dialectics probably date back at least 100 years further to Pythagoras. And some would say that, um, you know, it originally came from, from Egypt and that the ancient Greeks got it from Egypt. But regardless, so... The Socratic method is where if you present some sort of idea or a view then by then I by engaging with you in dialogue might help you shave off the weaker parts of your argument or you know you want to talk about it in terms of like a heading if you're not exactly on a true heading by engaging in dialogue with me I might help you sharpen your position and get back to a correct heading. Or if we have opposing views, we might do that to one another. and then even if we don't necessarily agree, at the very least, we may each sharpen our own opinion and get kind of, you know, slough off some of the weaker points of our respective arguments. Um Where dialectics can be used potentially to to obscure is where if you take dialectics and you look at it in terms of like, an either-or construct where you take two ideas and pit them against each other um, to get another idea to emerge, then that is often referred to as the Hegelian dialectic. So it's uh, it's named for Hegel, um, but it still comes out of these these ancient ideas, you know, with further refinement from other philosophers along the way, you know, to include people like Kant, etc. But anyway, that specific form of the dialectic is named for Hegel. And a lot of times, it's uh, it's spoken about in terms of um, you know thesis, antithesis, which again is just antithesis, and then synthesis. So you start with an idea, and then you take an opposing idea, and then through the interplay of those two ideas or concepts against one another, a third idea emerges, which is the synthesis. And this process can go on forever because that synthesis that emerges. Can just become a new thesis, which is then put into opposition against a new antithesis or antithesis, and then another synthesis emerges, and the you know the um, the uh, the process continues on. So where can we see this? We can see this at play with um, you know political parties, or with uh, with uh, philosophies, with ideas, with certain regimes. I mean, there's all types of things that can be viewed within a dialectical paradigm. So like, you know, the Republicans and Democrats, like I just said, but also, I mean, you could look at like the Cold War as a a dialectic. Um, You could look at like communism versus capitalism, which again, kind of within the greater context of the Cold War, but then just looking at those as economic systems. I mean, that can be looked at dialectically. And then so where I use, where I kind of talk about dialectics a lot is like, hey, some of these dialectics are not organic. Um, many of them can be. I mean, dialectics can emerge organically. But um, but part of my worldview, the way in which I kind of see things happening, is that uh, I'm not so sure that some of them are organic. And I believe that they may be orchestrated by power brokers who are kind of maintaining and manipulating both sides of this engineered dialectic to force the emergence of some preconceived synthesis. So anyway, that was a mouthful, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. No, that, that makes sense. Um, I just,
0: I look at what they're doing especially in terms of censorship and how, how just straightforward and blatant it is. And I'll, I'll just, I'll give you an an idea of of where I'm coming from. So like, I, I think that Hegelian dialectics, like I think there's, you know, I'm I'm with James Lindsay on that. There's like a this fundamentally progressive, right? Yeah. It's the idea that knowledge is going to move in this forward trajectory to perfection at some point by this constant, you know, uh, synthesizing um, of, of, of of battling ideas. But I really don't think that's how ideas work they you know, there's not there's there's truth that we're we're either closer to or further away. And the adversarial process, given like I was saying earlier about motivation being the master reason, you know, isn't necessarily how you get closer to the truth. Because I mean that requires an impartial third party to observe and and so on and so forth. Um so it's like there's you know, that happens for sure, but I don't think that that's like the overall big picture of how knowledge is, is formed and how it, how it progresses. Um, uh, and, and in any, in any case, I'm, I'm skeptical of Hegelian dialectics for, for that reason. I think it's fundamentally uh, progressive in nature in a way that assumes that there's an endpoint to history where we're going to know all the stuff by this process. And I don't think that's the, the process with respect.
1: to yeah. yeah. So the question that I would have there is, um, so when you're pointing out the limitations of this ongoing process, this, um, uh, in, in the minds of some people, and, you know, Dr. James Lindsay refers to this, but like, if it's supposed to be progressive because you get a new synthesis, you go through a new dialectical process, another synthesis emerges, and you just keep going. In theory, that could be progressive. Now, whether or not that, that actually works that way, of course, is up for debate. Um, so I, I don't know that I would argue that there are limitations to that process. I think I'm with you. I'm with you there. Um, my point is that I think that that process, if done in a manufactured-type way, um, by people who have the power to be able to manipulate two sides of an already manufactured dialectic can potentially create the illusion that ideas are evolving or systems are evolving when they're not necessarily getting any closer to the truth yeah give give people the
0: sensation that there's progress and hope for change you know, yeah so popular. when we speak
1: about when we speak about you know progressives and generally people who are on the the left or whatever. So first of all, you know, progress is almost always used as a as, as a positive thing, right? But when we use but when people on the right typically use the term progressive as a as a label for those on the left, I mean it's almost used as a pejorative, right? But um but re- that aside, regardless of that, um sometimes you know you can ask individuals if we are progressing what are we progressing towards and and when have we achieved like where's the terminus you know so at what point have we achieved an acceptable amount of progress i guess right yeah so with the progressive religion i think
0: it's notionally it's it's complete equity like that's the end point of history in the progressive religion is you know an abolition of the individual you know completion of of the formation of the collective where everyone is truly equal. I mean it's not compatible with reality in in any way. And ultimately, I think what it all is, and I'll pivot into kind of like giving my my stance on what I think is is going on as kind of a a, a slight spin on um on what on on your perspective is I really, it it all comes down to moralizing self-interest. So everybody that's engaged in this, uh, you know, they're they're trying to come up with a narrative that makes their world make sense, that paints themselves as the good guy. I think that that's what most people are are doing, mm-hmm. or or at least correct. So like full-blown psychopaths who lack empathy them being a good guy isn't caring for other people or caring about what happens to other people. That's what suckers do. So like use that, that term, the good guy very broadly, because that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, given our, our, our variations. What I, I think is happening is, um, there are broad camps and there are competing narratives. And they, they kind of fall along these lines. So right now you have the regime and the professional managerial class, and they have you know, the globalist American empire slash global homo grand narrative. So mm-hmm. the world's burning up because of climate change, because of CO2, um, you know, there's trans genocide going on. The, the greatest risk to freedom and an open society is bigotry and hatred, and if we can just eliminate those people, then everything will be fine. Um, Inequality of of any kind is is bad. Uh, You know, borders between nations is bad and hierarchical and discriminatory. Um, All of these shared assumptions that go into this grand narrative that isn't really internally consistent, but it does its job. It, it empowers a lot of different people in a lot of different ways and allows them to moralize their self-interest. It allows people in the political class to you know, plunder American taxpayers, um, workers in the third world who peg their currency to the dollar you know, and, and whose countries buy U.S. debt. Um, they they get to just scoop all that up. Um, uh, women and ethnic minorities they get to use critical race theory and gender gender ideology, uh, third wave feminism in order to advance their self interest at the expense of economic competitors. You know which are you know white men are you can if you split it up like that. Uh, they're uh, economic competitors, and it's a way to compete economically, uh, affirmative action, etc. cetera, um, socially, just in terms of elevating status and uh, in, even in interpersonal conversations where somebody says something like, say, I, as a white man, say something that challenges the status of, um, you know, a, a female coworker or you know this doesn't really happen in the military but i you know in a corporate job or something like that um uh homosexual trans whatever some some sort of uh somebody high on the victim hierarchy uh you know if they perceive that their status is being threatened they can say yo you just don't understand because of your white privilege so all of these People are aligned in their own self-interest by this grand unifying narrative, sure. And then you have like all the competing narratives. And so, what really unifies that narrative in my mind is the is a denial of objective reality, because they they use postmodernism heavily because they have to because it's not internally consistent. So you can say, hey, logic doesn't exist. So like when you say, hey, that's not consistent, they're like, that's that's it used to be called bourgeois logic back when it was like a class thing. And now they've transmuted class into race. And so now it's like, um, you know, when you make an argument that makes somebody look bad and you're a white dude, I mean, even if you're not white, you know, they like a black dude can say people, black dudes have been accused of white privilege, right? Like Larry Elder's the black face of white supremacy and um, you know, a guy named Weber, I think, was in a news conversation with somebody and was like, Yeah, that's because you're white privilege. he's like, Hate to break this to you, but I'm black, you know? And so it, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It's a tactic to uh, allow them to make this internally inconsistent grand negative cohere. Because if you can't use logic to attack it, then that can exist just fine and it, can, and it can go on. So what unifies opposition to this grand narrative is an acknowledgement that objective reality exists and that logic exists and that there are these rules, there's only one logic, there's not multiple logics, you know, polylogism, um, that's, that's bullshit. Uh, but the problem that you have on that side is you have a bunch of people that agree objective reality exists doesn't necessarily mean that they agree as to the nature of objective reality and all the particulars and then you add in that layer of uh widely varying subjective values like people value things very differently among people that acknowledge that objective reality exists we don't all share the same values even though we have that acknowledgement and you have two camps but one's very easy to divide um and one is coherent for you know you know reasons of incentives and so what the what the political solution I think is in this context is those people that are are disparate and divided need to find how we're able to unite what unites us Our shared belief and objective reality. Okay, cool. How about subjective values? Well, some of our values aren't compatible, but that's where federalism comes into play, where the smaller the community, the more you can discriminate against people that don't believe the same way that you do in that smaller community. The larger scale, the less discrimination becomes Uh, acceptable because we all, you know, a a nation, you can't expect people to have the same values in a nation of 330 million people. And so that broadly speaking is a pop, the populist narrative, like the idea that the people should be able to exert control of their government, live in accordance with their values. And, you know, at the local community level, have those values be you know to to some extent maybe incompatible with values of other people halfway across the country, but enough in in alignment that we can still have a federal government, but then not at all worried about what people are doing elsewhere in the world. so not at all trying to have a moral outrage over um, female circumcision in Afghanistan because it's like that's you know you can't enforce what happens in the, the People are going to do crazy things throughout the rest of the world. So it's like we can really only afford to, you know, we we have the history in our country where we have natural law and we have these certain values, and there's a there's at least somewhat of a shared culture there. And that that culture gets more particular the more you drill down the federal system, going from state to county, um, and, and on down. And so those populist narratives, like. Since that's the roadmap for uniting and and creating a, frankly, it's a much larger coalition because that's the majority of Americans, probably more like 55, 60%, maybe even 65% of Americans um, that will resonate with. Whereas the global homo coalition, that's like a solid 30 to 35% of Americans that are in that camp that are, but they're locked tight united. And so we have the numbers, but can we unite to, uh, you know, politically uh, subjugate those tyrants? Because they, they their desires are for the subjugation of the majority of the, the will of the American people. So I'm talking about the will of the American people, right? That's what makes it populist. Mm-hmm. And if you look at censorship efforts, They are all targeting populist narratives. Why? It's like they have their their own predicates. Like they use their own proxies and predicates. And they're usually based on things like, oh, Russian disinformation. um, Or recently it's democracy. So what they've done is they've characterized institutions as they're all democratic institutions. Like the Department of Justice, the FBI, the DOD. These are all democratic institutions. So if you say anything that undermines confidence in these democratic institutions, you're undermining faith and confidence in our democracy, right? You're trying to destroy our democracy. And so that is the predicate that they then use to suppress and silence populist voices on the internet. Now what's really going on, what's really going on is populism is an is an existential threat. These populist narratives are an existential threat to the regime's, you know, uh, globalist American empire, transnational, um, international rules-based order uh, regime, you know, where they have, their control is, is dependent upon that narrative cohering their group and then I think where your uh reference to dialectic, what better tool to keep the populist opposition divided than a bunch of perhaps not organic. So I think a lot of it is organic because it's not easy to agree with people on the nature of complex topics, and we all have different values, like that's a fact. yep, but yep. I agree. How easy is it to take something that's already hard, getting a bunch of people to find out where they can agree enough to like live in harmony. And sow division, like plunge a knife into weak points by uh, with, with this, the very method that you speak of. So that's kind of my interpretation of, of how it all fits together and what we face. And the reason I'm confident of that is because they're so transparent and aggressive about suppressing populist narratives, that's what suggests to me the most that even if they they couldn't articulate this and say it in the exact same way or understand it the same way, they sense the threat that it poses yeah. to their power.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let me. Yeah. That's that's good. Um. So, I did want to mention federalism really quickly. So the way that our system was designed, you know, if you go back to the the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, and then the product that came out of that. So the so the states um, created a government, you know, the federal government in which they entrusted very specific powers to that federal government. And those are outlined, you know, those are the enumerated powers. And they generally had to do with things like, you know, the common defense or foreign, you know, a, a unity of foreign policy, uh, coining money, etc. cetera. But the vast majority of powers would be retained by the states. I think what Americans, if there's one thing that Americans do not understand about the formation of our own government, they do not understand that concept of federalism. And I think that there's also this underlying assumption that the federal government somehow created itself, as opposed to, again, if we want to look at that Philadelphia Convention in 1787, that was not the federal government creating itself. That was delegates from the states, you know, creating a federal government. So the good thing about having a federated system, right, is that it it posits a system in which to some degree, though not perfect, but to some degree, you can bridge a dialectic interestingly enough, that naturally exists that's known as a dialectic of the one and the many. So what's the dialectic of the one and the many? Because this is at play through so much of history. and there are, uh, you know, some fairly nefarious characters who knew this and exploited this, you know, one of them being Marx, for example, another one who who, um, I would say is responsible for a lot of what has gone on destructively in the West. And that's, um, that's Marcuse, you know, Marcuse through. I was, I was, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was thinking that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, um, I mean, it, just to, to a large degree that unfortunately not enough people in the West understand, but so what's the dialectic between the one and the many, first of all, a lot of people reverse the two and they think that the one is the many and the many is the one. So one in the many, what this means is, there's there's some natural tension that's going to occur between the many individuals that we all are right or if you want to expand it just slightly the many families that we all are or the many communities that we all are but it at the end you could reduce it down to just you know the individuals right and then the one which is the collective whole so a lot of a lot of people already want to reverse the two and they think that the many refers to the collective whole and that the one refers to like the one individual
0: that's yeah. Yeah, many individuals versus one collective
1: exactly and that's important it's important to understand that distinction because um a lot of what happens is done in a way to try and um disintegrate the notion of the many to collectivize us into one mass in which um particularity is destroyed so what what we need to do and there have to be ways to try and figure out okay well how do you just bridge this 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 dialectic because it's a in some ways it's a a false division or a false dichotomy because there are ways to celebrate individualities and in the particular differences that we have while also understanding that there are some united elements that we all share as well so for example if we're all Americans i mean that is something that we um, can unite in celebrating, but that doesn't mean that we have to erode all of our individual characteristics or the distinctions between, um, you know, the different races in the nation or the different cultural backgrounds or people who are from the South or the North or the West or the Southwest or whatever, um, or or the, the urban and the, and the poor, you know? So sometimes we can get caught up in, in false dialectics that don't necessarily have to be either A or either B, there's a way to kind of, you know, bridge that. Um, and I say that because I think if there's one thing that I want people to understand when it's when it comes to dialectics or understanding that at least in some cases, dialectics may not be organic. Of course, they can be. And in many cases, they are. But in some cases, with individuals or groups who have the power to do so, they can you know engineer division and engineer conflict in order that uh that something might emerge and another way in which this is often spoken about is through the construct of you know problem reaction solution so if there are people who are powerful powerful enough to do so in theory and i think this happens they can create a problem the reaction from the public will be one of disgust or um fear, panic, whatever it might be, and then that of course will cause some sort of solution to emerge and that solution may have been preconceived at the very beginning. You know, so that the the problem was offered in order to get to the solution. And the it's people like, who go for it. Like- 9 11 the Patriot Act and Global War on terror absolutely absolutely and I would say covid is another another yeah. great example but yes yes exactly so so something is done what's everyone's reaction it's either fear or panic disgust all of those you know whatever it is but then that makes the solution possible whereas absent that initial problem that solution would have been entirely unthinkable so the Patriot Act would have never been passed without, um, yeah, you know what PNAC is—the project for a new American yeah, century. B- Ninety-nine, they had that. They had that language in the document that called for a, uh, a new Pearl Harbor. You know, yeah. so absent some sort of new Pearl Harbor, you will never get to something as comprehensive as the uh, as the Patriot Act. And then, because I'm just going to throw this in there. The fact that it's called the Patriot Act, which is which is an acronym, and I can't remember, which is Orwellian. Yeah, and, and also kind of a gaslighting technique, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just so. This goes back to the way we open the conversation. Um, let's look at some of these dystopian elements, and I don't know that we actually define dystopia. So, what's a dystopia? So, there's totalitarian, you know, which is as the name suggests it's a regime that for lack of a better term kind of is is seeking total control or at least as total as control can be over their subjects and i use the term subjects you know very deliberately um so what's a what's a dystopia so a dystopia is a type of totalitarian regime um but generally when we speak about it in a dystopian sense a lot of times it posits some sort of futuristic society uh the word dystopia um is a greek word that means the opposite of a utopia so utopia generally speaking is like oh you know everything's perfect Uh, i think the word actually literally means nowhere like a place that doesn't exist but the the concept behind that is it doesn't exist because it's supposed to be this this ideal that you potentially could approach but you could never reach that's a utopia so what's a dystopia? A dystopia would be the exact inverse where, you know, everything's everything's really bad. Now, in theory, yeah. maybe it also is an extreme, you know, where things can get really bad, really bad, really bad, but you would never actually achieve, you know, ultimate dystopia or whatever. But in any case, um, dystopian literature or dystopian fiction, uh, a lot of times has some overlap with science fiction because you'll notice that a lot of science fiction stories take place in a futuristic society that may include a lot of dystopian elements. So dystopia fiction is not necessarily science fiction, but there can be overlap between between the two because of that often futuristic uh, futuristic way. So I'll give you an example, because this might be interesting to people who are listening to this. So. You'll hear people on the news sometimes say, oh, you know, this is dystopian or, you know, and I think that's okay. Like you can, you can use that as an analogy, even if typically we think of it in a futuristic way. So like in the present, could you ever truly be in a dystopia? I, I don't know that we have to take the analogy that far, right? Um, but I do think that we're moving into some, I think there are dystopian elements in our society right now. And I think that there are regimes in the world that are quite dystopian. And people often wonder, if China is being almost proposed as this um, as this like social credit state that uh, that that serves as the model that other states are eventually supposed to move towards, if you believe that there are world controllers that have the power to kind of manipulate these things uh, um, across the world, I kind of believe that there are individuals who are trying to do that. Well, they—I mean—they're they very huh?
0: open about the fact that they're trying to do that. I mean, what's the World Economic Forum? Yeah, I mean, yeah it's, exactly. It's, it's their stated goal: public-private partnerships, ESG scores. I mean, they're—it's not exactly like they're trying to hide their intentions, you know?
1: Yeah. So uh, if you take, you,
0: you will own nothing and be happy. I mean, yeah, that's, exactly. That's and actually,
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that because that's actually very. I'm glad you said that. So, um, so what's the most totalitarian regime? on the earth or probably north korea i don't know maybe there's some other contenders but probably north korea but i i this is brad miller speaking um but i think china is more dystopian than north korea north korea is probably more repressive but when you look at that um y- moving towards the future you're kind of progressing towards this like futuristic society the the smart cities which i think is a is a is a uh, an extremely eerie concept um I think China is far more dystopian than North Korea, even if North Korea is totalitarian. And I just I make that distinction because dystopian regimes are totalitarian, but it I mean it's more than that. Again, it kind of posits that like that futuristic scenario, et cetera. So Klaus Schwab has said, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny. I'm really glad you said that because um, this reminds me of a, a Brave New World. So you will own nothing and be happy. So there are two, there are two concepts at play there in that little mantra. So one is this communitarian uh, idea of you will own nothing. So um, the way I kind of interpret that is everyone has been masked together in a very collectivized way, you know, and communitarian, and I'm not necessarily talking about the political ideology that is often referred to as communitarian. I'm talking about just small C communitarian. You know, there are elements of small C communitarianism that can be positive. But when that's taken to an extreme, when you start moving towards, we talked about the dialectic between the one and the many, when you start moving toward this, this like mass of one, uh, you're talking about losing all of your individuality or your family relationships. I mean, that's kind of where this is headed. And then, of course, eroding all notion of private property. But there's the other notion there that is, um, and you will be happy. So the first thing that jumps out at me every time I hear that that mantra from the World Economic Forum or from Klaus Schwab specifically, um, is Brave New World. Now, why? Because Brave New World's posited future is different than the 1984 model, though they obviously share some uh, share some some similar themes. But um, so in 1984. One of the themes at play is the use of a recreational drug that is called soma, which sounds a lot like you know our word somatic. So soma, s o m a, and the uh, the recreational use of this drug is encouraged in Brave New World because it uh, it just it, it keeps you you know fat, dumb, and happy. It keeps you lazy. It keeps your mind engaged in some ethereal world where you can pretend that you're happy and you can get away from what you're doing. And so, of course, the regime encourages the use of a SOMA. And there is um, there's a saying in the book that is repeated that is um, a gram is better than a damn. Meaning uh, if you use SOMA, it's much better to use a gram of SOMA than to give a damn. So forget about your, forget about your cares and your worries and your struggles and the way in which you might be repressed by the regime and just take some Soma, you know? And and I think that that is, you know, let's put on our thinking cap, right? And let's be prescient about this, uh, this book, Brave New World, which was written 90 years ago um, by Aldous Huxley, who's kind of an insider. I mean, he kind of knows what he's talking about. And, um, but think about, the ways in which some form of SOMA is being used to, uh, to pacify everyone today. Now it could be drugs, like literally, but what are other forms that are used to pacify people today? Digital content. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, so this is one of the things that I just, I want people to think about, you know, is what are, what is, being used oftentimes couched in a positive way that is being used that comes with some pretty negative strings attached, you know? Um, but I, I do love that saying it's, uh, it's better to, to, you know, better to give a gram than a dam or, or whatever exactly it is. Um, because I just think that that is, I like that little saying, but I like it because it's, it's, it's so dangerous. It is so dangerous to have that thought But there are so many people today that um, I think operate like that. In fact, we all do to some degree. We're all controlled to some degree. But the, um, the larger extent to which you realize that these control mechanisms exist out there, maybe in forms in which you would not readily identify, once you kind of start to realize that, then clearly you can resist the amount of control that they have over you. Like I would also say, you know, the rampant use of pornography today is another form of of soma. So there there are a lot of ways in which people can just get wrapped up in things that uh that aren't real and that you know degrade their uh, their quality of life and they may not even realize it or they may think it's harmless but they don't realize that a lot of this is being used specifically as a tactic to you know pacify them.
0: Yeah, a lot of you know cope, right? That's what it's called in right-wing meme meme culture, right? It's all it's all cope yeah so cope cope comes in many forms and um a lot of times yeah, like the, you know content um you know wh- whatever it is uh, and then the maybe yeah perhaps the more that we're aware of it the less effective it becomes as cope and then we actually have to do something you know
1: so like yeah. for for you know for dudes, right so um so I think there have been concerted efforts over time to attack both men and women. But the the end is the same in, in attacking both, but the tactics are different. Maybe because different tactics work. Um, but just as you know, two dudes here, what I would say is um, you know, for men and and, and women too, but just understanding that the tactics used are different, but like understand the ways in which they are attacking masculinity and then ask yourself why they are attacking masculinity and why they would try and look for ways in which to you know pacify men or have men orient their energy and their drive into something that is not ensuring that they're free or ensuring that they're taking care of their families or ensuring that um um you know the their own health the health of their family and the health of the communities is is maintained?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there's unquestionably um, something to that. I I just think it's it's so complex because it's there, there's so many different players involved uh, with different objectives. I think a lot of what we feel is just the cumulative effects of the longhouse. I think women of uh, and, and feminine. Uh, manner of interpersonal uh, relations have completely taken over every major institution, um, like a cer- certainly the military. You know, I remember when I first, uh, first came in and was in the infantry and, um, you know, it was com- completely different. And then I also remember, like, very distinctly, I, I went to a headquarters battalion out of the infantry battalion that I was in and you know lived in that environment for a year or so as a company xo and then one of my buddies got promoted and so i went back to that same infantry battalion that i was in to watch the promotion and the like the culture it was just insane like to me like how 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 quickly like i'd become adapted to that you know it's it's kind of portrayed as a it's portrayed as professional right yeah. but it's, it's really not it's it's just different it's it's yeah. it's feminine and so i was used to this feminine workplace environment and i went back to my buddy's promotion it's just like man these guys the guy wouldn't get the job done he gets the job done and this, it's like everybody's talking yeah. like that I'm like holy shit like, I couldn't believe it. It's, it's such a night and day difference. But now even the combat arms are, are integrated and there's females there. And so even just a, a few, um, you know, in the early stages, it's like they're expected to conform to this environment and there's the social pressure to do that. But beyond a, a very early tipping point, it's like, no, that's not, that's not professional. Like professionals don't act like that, you know? And uh, I, I think it affects testosterone levels, you know, like, you know, atrazine and the, uh, you know, and the pesticides and stuff. And um, yeah, just everything across the board. Um, you know, we're, we're very much living in the longhouse and even having groups of uh, just men, and having conversations in groups of just men is kind of looked down upon like, Oh, that's like, that's discriminatory, you know? And, uh, yeah, there's, there's something to it for, for sure. The motivations to do it. Yeah. I mean, obviously a bunch of highly motivated independent, uh, you know, based men that aren't willing to bend the knee, um, to, uh, notions of social propriety as defined by the longhouse den mother is advantageous for the regime. Um, but yeah, it's so many people share in the incentives and so many, so many people benefit so many different people benefit that it it's probably impossible to isolate one cause of that phenomenon. Cause there's so many, yeah, so many people that benefit from, uh, from weak and docile men, including, you know, feminist uh, women that, you know, Murray Rothbard would call viragos, you know, like the, the viragos, they, they benefit from that tremendously. And, you know, they're not concerned, like every, everybody's different, right? We all have different personalities and we all want different things. Um, and nobody's thinking about the wider social context, you know, so some people don't want to have families and uh don't want to have children and you know that kind of stuff's not important to them and they're willing to tear down uh social structures and and um you know adherence to you know certain traditional values because it's like well it doesn't help me any and it's like well it's baked into the society that you're a part of and um yeah, people just don't, yeah. It, I think people largely under, like, uh, feminist women especially, underestimate the extent to which their ideology and, and dominance of a feminine, because they look at masculinity and they're like, oh, that's toxic masculinity. And I don't think people understand that it's like either one paradigm's predominant or the other is. It's not like the workplace right now is an absence of masculinity um, or it's like, uh, it's more equal. It's not equal. Um, that's not what's going on. Like the current environment is uh, it's feminized, you know? So it's like, if it's not masculinized, it's feminized. It's not, I, I think it's more of a dichotomy, like kind of one mode of interpersonal interaction is predominant. And um i I think people largely believe in the myth of equality and that um like it's being inclusive to uh behave in a feminized manner and it's like that's that's not inclusive it's equally not inclusive to the men and so it's like i think whatever mode of interaction is most appropriate for an organization depends on the purpose of that organization and so for a military uh, I think it's pretty clear which which one is probably more effective, um, you know, in the context of the military, especially in small, small units, especially in combat arms. But even to say that, you know, would be controversial, but I don't, I think you'd have a hard time. Um, well, I mean, no, no, no dudes that have served probably that aren't on mill Twitter, like those, those type of dudes, like anybody who's served in combat over the course of the past 20 years, I I think very few people would disagree with me. They would hear that and they would say, no, it doesn't sound right. It's all about inclusivity and, you know, um, so take that for what it's worth. Um, I don't know. What
1: do you, what do you think? I think, um, I think it's very clear that the current senior leaders of the military are making decisions that they, they know are going to destroy the military. I just, I, I think there's no other way around it. There's no way that you could, Listen, people make bad decisions, and, and decisions that can can bring about unintended consequences. I think these people are making decisions to bring about intended consequences. Those consequences are intended to be negative. Um, and and at this point, just nobody's going to convince you otherwise. I mean, they're just making so many decisions that any reasonable person could tell you that's not going to work. You know, it's not going to work. You you're not you're not even you're not even really pretending that it's going to work. So um what i think for our military this is and this is really hard and i am so disappointed in so many of my my peers and friends um because if people were on the wrong side of this two years ago i mean the mandate's almost been out for two years and if people were maybe true believers they really thought they were doing the right thing by getting the vaccine maybe they even thought they were doing the right thing by by mandating the vaccine ordering their troops to get it um I could I could maybe say, okay, well, you were incredibly naive two years ago, but now two years later, with all the information that has come out, you no longer can blame ignorance. I mean, if you're ignorant at this point, it's because you're willfully ignorant and that presupposes cowardice because you're you're afraid to look into this further because you're afraid of what you might find. So, um, you know, I. I direct a lot of my commentary towards uh towards my peer group, you know, specifically commanders. So those kind of at the 05 level, and even to some degree at the 06 level, I think commanders at the 06 and the 05 level could have stopped this. They could have stopped not just the COVID mandate, though they could have, but also just all this other nonsense that is happening. If they would um, if they would have said, hey, and I'm not even talking about a hundred percent, if a if a small but loud minority, twenty percent, maybe even less than that, fifteen percent, had said we're not going to go along with this, uh, I think it would have stopped it. It would have stopped it. But we didn't. We didn't have that. We didn't have. We didn't have one percent. You know. So now we see where we are, and these individuals, I think, if they've set themselves on a trajectory where they've gone this far, and and maybe they don't, maybe they don't know how to back out now. Like I, I don't know what to do, and so they're just keeping their heads down, going along with this, and um, for their retirement. And I'm like, hey, listen, I'm not necessarily telling anybody to resign. I'm not telling anybody to walk away. But what I am saying is, if you're not engaged in conversations with your superiors right now, if you're not speaking out about what's going on, then uh, then what you know, then what are you doing? Then where is all of this personal courage that to use the arm you know the army value? Where's all this personal courage um, that our organization is supposedly predicated upon? I mean, it's it's, not only is it one of our formally stated army values, but just clearly any military has to be built upon a foundation of courage, Um, whether that courage is physical for obvious reasons or whether that courage is um, is moral, you know, so. I'm very, very disappointed at how we have seen just how hollow our military is. And, um, and I'll just say, I've spoken a lot about moral injury. And I think that we have, we have a military right now that is completely morally injured. And I think that does represent a strategic threat for which our senior DOD leaders are wholly and entirely responsible. And that until that is addressed, we cannot consider ourselves an effective fighting force, you know?
0: Yeah. So you, you don't, um, you don't think it's also possible that they're kind of victims of, uh, the same gaslighting, you know, it's like, as, as soon as you get to that 05, 06 level, like you're, you're solidly in the professional managerial class, you know, you've, you've been, you know, you've gone to these professional schools, which have these um, woke commissars that inject certain blocks of instruction uh, into it. Uh, all the assumptions of the international rules-based order, and how this is kind of the the correct and appropriate and professional way to to think about these things and, and conceive of international relations. Um, you don't think a lot of them are just kind of like the head girl archetype that um, is you know, just so accustomed to trying like the, the strivers that are just a focused on a, achieving, finding out what teacher wants, and then, you know, uh, trying to execute what teacher wants without having the strategic, uh, depth to really consider the overall implications. Cause I, I think that that's, that...
1: so I, I agree with that. I think that is true, but I think that that is, um, it is, I think that is true, but I think that we can hold them accountable for that lack of strategic depth in their thinking, uh, like you just mentioned. So for example, you know, if you're a commander at the 05 level or, or above, or even just an 05, even if you're not in a command position, but if you're, just, if you're at that level, you know, you're expected to have some sort of strategic thinking ability. So if you lack the clarity of thought to be able to exist in a complex environment and understand the interplay between, you know, various, um, you know, divergent variables. You know, I understand it. I, I, I get it. But if you lack the ability to be able to survey the environment and the interplay of all of these different variables, and then make a determination as to what is the best course of action in that admittedly complex environment, then, um, I mean, we just can't, we just, we, we can't use you, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. What are you getting paid for?
1: Not yeah, yeah, not not everybody. Not everybody is cut out to be a uh, you know a, a commander in the military, especially at that level where you're. We don't we don't need you as a commander because you can make the right decision when it's easy to make the right decision. We need you as a commander because we can trust you to make the right decision when it's extremely hard and it's extremely murky, and there's not like a clear. There's not one decision that is clearly so much better than the others, you know, and we need you to operate amid incomplete information. We need you to operate in an environment that is dynamic and rapidly shifting. And we need you to operate in an environment where um, it may not be exactly morally clear either. And Oh, by the way, we need you to operate in an environment where um, we may expect you to have the balls to be able to stand up to your superior and say, I'm, I'm not sure that the way we're headed is the direction we should be headed in, you know? Um, And those conversations with superiors don't necessarily have to be antagonistic. Now they may be antagonistic, but just going and approaching for clarification to one superior and saying, Hey, is there, is there something that I'm not understanding here? Because what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing in my mind conflicts with this other piece of information or this law, or this regulation, or this policy, or whatever it is. So what what am I missing, or where's the disconnect, or whatever? Um, I think some of that happened, but not nearly to the degree to which it did happen. And in those rare cases where it did happen, individuals were, I would say, they were too quick to accept whatever um, ridiculous excuse they were given by by their superior so they might have asked a question to their superior their superior gave them a very hollow response or they heard something from the lawyers or whatever and then they just accepted it they probably told themselves even if just subconsciously while well, i tried i spoke up i was you know given a response or i was shot down and i'm now at the salute point and so i'm just going to salute and you know and, and drive on and i think like um Listen, I understand the salute point, but I think I think people just demonstrated a lot of um, like a, a lack of courage and a lack of integrity to a degree that I think is is alarming. So, circle back to your original question: um, Do I think they're victims of much of what they have they have uh, been taught along the way? Yes, I do. I do not believe that that excuses their actions. That's how I would sum that up very succinctly. And I mentioned moral injury a couple of minutes ago. I think it is completely possible. And I think a lot of these individuals, um, I think what's happening is they are both victims and perpetrators of moral injury. Okay, so take a battalion commander, you know, one of my peers, for example, who went along with this, right? And now two years later, he's in a situation he doesn't know how to get out of it, potentially. He probably kicked people out of his battalion. Um, In many of their cases, you know, and so he ruined people's careers, maybe put them through financial hardship by, you know, kicking them out, ruining their career or whatever. And he's probably forever marred their careers of other individuals that didn't necessarily end up outside the army. They're still in, but their careers have probably been forever marred, right? They missed a promotion because of it or they missed an assignment that would have, you know, sent them on a a better trajectory or whatever it might be. So this individual, Who also, you know, has taken the shots themselves, probably because they believed a lot of the, you know, pseudoscientific nonsense that was thrown out there to everybody. And so they are at the exact same time, both a victim of moral injury and they feel that they've been victimized, but they're also a perpetrator of moral injury. And then one step further, because they know that they were part of it and that they perpetrated this on others that's another dimension of them also feeling victimized, if that makes sense. Like, I'm victimized by what was done to me, but I'm further victimized by what I did to somebody else because I feel guilty about that, you know? So it's 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 incredibly complex. And so we have a bunch of people out there that probably feel uncomfortable putting the uniform on. They feel uncomfortable towards their superiors, either at their local unit level or at the senior Pentagon, you know, DOD level or both um and i think that this is strategically this is this is an ineffective fighting force and until that is recognized um it's you know it's not going to get rectified yeah i mean i
0: obviously i'm probably gonna have to go here and just a
1: okay
0: hey yeah, well let's just let's just leave it at that because i mean we could right. we could talk cool. about this stuff forever
1: um uh, appreciate the great conversation oh um, yeah man terrific it's, uh, yeah fan, fantastic i appreciate you you uh bringing a lot of this up and uh yeah great a great discussion for sure
0: yeah so i'll, I'll put in uh links to the course um in the uh in the description links to your sub stack and then uh yeah you know anytime you want to get back together you know once it's been a while again yeah we can we can, we can talk more i think i'm probably going to be involved in that, that course i'll probably yeah yeah up, yeah yeah, so. yeah. Uh, so the, the
1: last it. thing that I would say is, uh, and I appreciate you mentioning my Substack too. So people can uh, can find me on Substack. I know you'll include the link, but it's just my name, bradmiller10.substack.com. But um, so when you include the link to the course, so people will see on that same website, which is uh, ipac-edu.org, IPAC for um, Institute of Pure and Applied Knowledge. But at that website, where this course is listed, um, people will see, you know, 30 plus other courses that might also interest them. And there are courses, a lot of them are uh are kind of you know science and nature, but not all of them. I mean, there are, but a lot of people are interested in that. I mean, there's a course about, you know, the math of vaccines, but then there's also a course, uh, there there are courses in psychology. There's a course that's entitled How Not to Be Fooled. You know, it's just kind of a lot about what you and I spoke about today. So uh I just want to leave that with everybody who's listening too is go check those out too you might find one of the other 30 courses that uh, that also might be appealing or whatever. But anyway, thanks for your time today Grant. Um, I look forward to this getting out there and thanks for the discussion. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
0: likewise Brad.
1: Thanks. All right man, have a good one. See you.